This is the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. It is the 1st of October 2020, and what an incredible show I have for you today. I had the chance to sit down with Nick Baker, TV presenter and naturalist Nick Baker, who I grew up watching on TV. I had the most enthralling conversation with him, and we're, we're going to get into that just, just right now. But before, before I do... I need to give a shout out, of course, to the top tier patrons who help support this show and make it possible, which this week include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speaker of RDContracting.co.uk, Tom McCraith, James Benjamin Norndale, James Marchington, the guys at South Asia Stalking, Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron and Mark Zabrowski. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you so much to all of the other Patreons that uh, don't get a shout out because you're not a top tier Patreon, but you all make a massive difference. And I've had a, a lot of like $1, $2 Patreons in the last couple of weeks. Uh, your support is massively appreciated. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace and you can check out the different tiers and the different swag that you get for different tiers. To our competition, which we run every two weeks on the show for the chance to win a copy of Modern Huntsman. And two weeks ago, I asked you to simply tag the podcast and share it with your friends on an Instagram, specifically on the Instagram story. And I had a phenomenal, I think quite possibly, this is the most interaction I've ever had for a competition. So many shares on Instagram. And the winner, picked completely at random, was Bob Kahn. So congratulations, Bob Kahn. You are the winner of Volume 3, Modern Huntsman. Reach out to me on Instagram, or you can email podcast at paceproductionsuk.com, and I will get a copy of Volume 3 out to you. Of course, Modern Huntsman are our partners on the show. You can read all about them and what they're up to by going over to all the W's, modernhuntsman.com. Or if you check out the back catalogue, any of the conversations that have Modern Huntsman title, or with editor-in-chief Tyler Sharp, that will give you a good idea. We talk about it quite a lot on the show, uh, so I won't dig into it anymore now, but you will be hearing from contributors, I have no doubt, as we get into releasing volume six, and I'll be interviewing some of them on the podcast. And that is coming before the end of the year. I am currently uh, doing the research for my article for the next installment. It's all very exciting stuff. There's some incredible articles in there. To the new competition, which again is to win a copy of Modern Huntsman, Volume 3. And I'm going to keep it super simple, something I haven't done for a little while. Just go and rate or review the show. It really helps to get this show in front of other people. The more ratings we have, the more reviews we have, the more often it appears uh, when people are searching for shows on the different podcast platforms. So if you can, please, if you're especially if you're a regular listener, go and rate or review the show uh, wherever it is that you listen to the podcast. I think the only place that you can't do that is um, Spotify, but on any other platform you can. And I'll have a look at all the people who have done that in the last two weeks. And one of you will be picked at random uh, to win a copy, and I will send a copy out to you. Uh, lastly, before we jump into this great conversation, some of you may have noticed that uh, I've released another podcast called Into the Anthropocene, The Science of Conservation. 
Um, basically, what that is, is the science shorts that we release uh, every two weeks now in between these long-form conversations. It's that podcast. Uh, I'm going to run them inside the Into the Wilderness podcast until the end of the year, probably, uh, at which point I'm going to strip them out and run them in Into the Anthropocene. So essentially, we're going to have two podcasts. One, Into the Wilderness, which you are all listening to right now, which is these incredible long-form conversations with people like Nick Baker, who you're about to hear from. Uh, and then the one that comes out uh, in the in-between weeks is going to be these much shorter, much more specific conversations, generally with scientists, about some of the leading conversations in the science of conservation. Uh, so don't worry. For for now, I'm just going to keep releasing them inside the Into the Wilderness podcast. But please go and check it out. Uh, go and have a look at Into the Anthropocene the science of conservation with Byron Pace, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can't find it, please let me know. I'm trying to make sure that it's available everywhere. It would be awesome if you could just go and subscribe to that so that when we get into the new year and I strip out these science shorts and just put them in this podcast, that you're not going to miss out. Uh, and I think that's it for now. That's all from me. Uh, let's get into this amazing show. Nick, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It's a great privilege to have you on. One of the one of the amazing things about doing this podcast, which I've been doing for so many years now, is that every now and then I get to speak to somebody who was an influence on me when I was younger, like one of the reasons that I do many of the things that I do now. And you are certainly one of those people, not not wanting to fanboy too much, but I, I watched you as a kid. I think it would have been, you can correct me, I, I think it would have been on The Really Wild Show, I guess? Yeah, that's probably where it started. I'm blushing now, of course, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty weird because I still feel like I'm a new boy. You know, it's that, that, that's, uh, that seems like yesterday. And um, yeah, I remember standing in front of cameras for the very first time and doing my I think my strand, my initial strand was called Baker's Basement, which was the worst place. I remember that, yeah. <laughs> worst place to put somebody who loves being outdoors is to shove them into a little dark place um, where all scrutiny is upon you. And of course, you know, in some ways it was a baptism of fire. And if I could survive that, I could survive anything. Um, but it was, a, you know, for me, it was weird working on a show that I had watched myself as a kid growing up. So, you know, uh, you talk about fanboy. I was surrounded by people that made the program that I loved. So I was I was starstruck at every turn. You know, and I was I had the pleasure of working with uh, Chris Packham and with Michaela and with Howie and with Janice and a load of other presenters over the years. And um, I mean, most of them are now really good friends of mine. And um, you know, you carry them through life. But the yeah, that, that initial step in front of the camera was terrifying, but I soon found my feet, and from that, lots of other projects have uh, have blossomed, and I'm still doing it, sort of, to a, in different ways, right to this very day. Uh, that's brilliant. How how did that start for you, though? Because you don't just suddenly one day find yourself in front of a camera. Well, I guess mo most people don't. Uh, what was what was your road in? What door opened for you that kind of uh, allowed that to happen? I think a lot of people think it's just sort of miraculous, but it, it tends to be that from many people that I've spoken to before, it's a series of small steps which all work towards uh, doing something which so many people would, would love to do. I mean, talking about your passion every day through different mediums, be that on a podcast or uh, on TV or radio. Well, it's a series of, you're right, it's a series of events, but it was a series of accidents. Um, I know it's hard to believe, but I, I was actually quite a self-conscious, quite quiet individual. 
um, until someone talked to me about my subject, which is where I used to lose myself, and I still do to this day. So as a kid, I was fascinated by, um, by, by nature. Um, and I was a, not, it became more than a fascination, it was an obsession. But it also became a tool to survive. You know, I got, bu- I, I got bullied a bit at school. I, I didn't really fit in. So I'll disappear off into the woods. And that unstructured green space was ultimately good for my, it's good for my mental health, it's good for my physical health. It's just good for me. Um, and that became my tool um, to survive, you know, the modern human world. Um, but when it comes to actually finding myself in front of the box, that voice to shout about things I was passionate about um, was happening in twofold. So I'd set up a club for kids um, uh, with one of my lecturers at university um, to provide a resource for children like me, like I would have been, which was called the Bug Club. Um, and the idea was that kids are interested in insects and creep crawlies could join the Bug Club and become um, educated and learn in an informal way. So that caught the imagination of quite a few people. And I think I did bits on Radio 4 that got spotted went in the local newspaper, then it got into the national newspapers, then it got picked up by Blue Peter. And when I went to Blue Peter in London, that was my first real step in front of a, a camera in a studio situation amazing blue blue peter launches or has launched so many people <laughs> yeah well it sort of gave me this confidence and then at the same time i was working for a british uh, um conservation charity called butterfly conservation um and i was working on a very rare butterfly here on dartmoor called the high brown fritillary but what i couldn't understand is why the academic conservation world which and they've caught up with this by the way now but at the time it was very very small and inwardly looking and i was watching these amazingly interesting scientists charging about the slopes of dartmoor in pursuit of this butterfly which was kind of funny but it was also kind of exciting and important and relevant to everybody. And I thought, nobody knows about this. So my natural instinct to shout loud about things that I was passionate about came into play. So I started talking about this project I was involved with. And in, in a, a roundabout way, I sort of became a bit of a voice for it. So I got a hang of being interviewed and talking to people about what I loved and those two things meant that I often crossed paths with the same people who picked up on the bug club thing. And a local naturalist to me, a guy called Kelvin Boot, who used to, which is a brilliant name, isn't it? Um, he, used to, <laughs> he used to work in a local museum here in Exeter, but he also presented the Natural History Program on Radio 4. And Kelvin took me aside and he said, Nick, you, you, you should consider doing this for a living. Um, and that was it, really. I had never thought about it up until that point. I thought I was just going to be jumping from short-term con- contract to a to short-term contract, um, which is how the conservation world works. Um, so, yeah, it was one of those very weird things. So I ended up just doing more and more of it. And then I applied for a job at the BBC Natural History Unit um, on the advice of um, a guy called Kelvin, also a guy called uh, Simon Roper, who worked for the local Wildlife Trust, who saw this flyer saying, we're looking for new presenters. Um, I would never have not seen it unless these friends of mine had pointed me in that direction. I was going out with a media student at the time, so we knocked together at what we call a showreel, which was terrible. Um, (laughs) And weird enough, I kind of got the job. So that was a program on the BBC called Nature Detectives. And some of the production staff of that also worked on The Really Wild Show. And that was the 
previously natural history unit um and it's a bit of a bit of a close shot bit of a family and i was in and i didn't know i was in at the time but i then went on and researched for the uh for the really wild show with the aim of being groomed up to replace chris packham when he was because he was about to leave so yeah it was the weirdest journey um and i still can't believe it happened because it, it it could have so easily missed all of those little moments could easily have, have uh, you know, it's a case of sliding doors. I could have easily have missed any of those uh, opportunities. So a lot of luck, um, quite a bit of determination. But underlying it all is a passion. I didn't set off to be a TV presenter. Um, and I'm not presenting quite so much now, but it doesn't stop me loving my subject. So, you know, that's I think that's the thing. A lot of people forget that they get, they go into the process of media and TV, but it's having something to say is really important. And um, I guess I had something to say, and I guess I still do. So, uh, yeah, trying to stop me talking is the difficult thing. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, actually, how often that story rings true, is that an underlying passion for something is what uh, carries people through and creates these what, from the outside, look like enviable careers. But it's this deep-seated passion in a subject and in something that is what has facilitated that. And I think it's so important for people to remember that when they're trying to work out their and feel their way through life is pursue the things that you are passionate about because the rest will follow. And I've heard that story so many times. And, and, and also it makes for a better, it makes for, if you're presenting something, whether it's radio, whether it's podcast, I mean, people come to me now and go, how do you be a presenter? Actually, I mean, you know what you're doing anyone can not say anyone could do what you're doing but there's good ones and there's bad ones but but anyone can give it a go uh, whereas back in the day i had you had to sort of knock on doors and know somebody in the biz and you know you had to sort of go through a certain process now if you've got something you want to say and talk about you can just do it i mean the stuff you the, you know the processing power of your average mobile phone now far exceeds any of the cameras that I stood in front of when I started. So you It's crazy. It. And, and so the bit that's missing, because anyone can be a presenter, anyone's got the tools now, the bit that's missing is what makes you watchable or listenable to. Um, and I'm not saying I am anymore, but, but people keep phoning me, so I guess I am. Um, but <laughs> the point is it's, it's, it's about passion. I mean, there was a guy called – I have no interest in steeplejacks or um, industrial landscapes, etc. But there was a presenter um, called Fred. Um, yeah, it was Fred Dibner. Um, it was, yeah, the famous Fred Dibner. Yeah. Who, who uh, as soon as I saw him talking, it, it didn't matter what it was. He, I was, I wanted to listen because he said it with such passion and authority and interest. And that is a little bit. I'm not saying it's it's missing from modern broadcasting, but. There's less of it. Um, and back in the early days of see, early days of TV, when I was growing up in the 70s, <laughs> presenters tended to be, they owned their subject. And it didn't matter what you looked like, what gender you were, what, uh, what creed or colour you were. None of that mattered. It's about your, your passion. And now we're in a, it's, it's kind of, you know, that was the way, you know, the, the cart horse led the cart. Now, quite often, it seems to be the other way around. Um, and as a consequence, I think a lot of TV um, and radio is slightly less interesting for it. Um, I'm not saying this. I mean, there is still exceptions to all that, and there's still some great broadcast and great presenters um, out there. But it does. It is a very peculiar way that we we do it all now. But um, but yeah, I mean, I've always said right from the beginning: if you can't do it, if you can't do it with passion, you can't get behind it. And what you're saying, then don't do it. It's not. It's not for you. Um, yeah. 
Um, I have the, the same sentiments towards Fred Dibner because I have no real great interest in the subjects that he talked about. But he was a true, and and when he was presenting that stuff, he was already quite an old man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he was a true character and spoke with such um, depth and enthusiasm that you couldn't help but be captivated. That's right. And we meet people like that all the time in, in pubs, in, in queues, although two meters apart nowadays. But, but <laughs> you do meet people like that. I mean, I've got a friend of mine. I mean, I, he's, he's become a friend. He, he, I work with him. He's a producer. But we get on because, in fact, we did um, we'll get on to the Isle of Wight a bit, a little bit I, I suspect. But mm. uh, we, we, we did the Isle of Wight project together recently. And I know I'm in good grip because I, I get I'm, I'm accused of being a nerd uh, uh, all the time because of my level of interest and depth and observational. Uh, That's a badge of pride. That it should is now be. it is now I guess. But, but what's interesting? I'm always so self conscious about this to an extent. But I'm working with somebody who builds and restores 1980s arcade games. Now I have wow. no interest in. Donkey Kong 3 or Man or any of that. I remember it and it was part of my life, but I've left all that behind. However, when I listen to this guy talking about the depths he goes to to find the original uh, tube monitor for these massive, great, being congress arcade machines with dodgy graphics, I, I'm, I'm fascinated because I love that passion. I love the fact that he cares that much about something that doesn't interest me, but because he cares, I do want to know more and and that's i mean that's what that's what we're talking about isn't it yeah it's you're so much of what you describe as uh, or the sort of kind of realization that this communication with uh, people who weren't embedded within these subjects was something that wasn't really happening at the time we're so much more aware of now that i mean you can go and do courses in science communication which is what you've basically been doing your whole career yeah yeah and it's weird because I mean, another cameraman man I work with, his cat, one of his catchphrases is, you don't get that out of books. And do you know what? That's pretty much what it is. <laughs> I love that. I can share with people loads of stuff, but sometimes I don't know where it's come from. Um, and I've made my own I've, – I've taken my own view of the world and I've tried to communicate that. And you try and find that in a book and you can't. And that's what you have to do. You have to find your own path. You have to – to an extent, you can you can give yourself all the tools, but you've got to have something to say. Um, and, and and I think I mean I'm talking, I'm feeling out of my depth already because I'm trying to explain something that I don't normally have to explain because I just do it. Um, yeah, and it sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet, which is awful. So, but so I'm not. I'm just trying to explain where I'm coming from. But it's a very yeah. No, I, I, I get that, and I think it's also it it's so important that you actually live and experience the things you're talking about. I think that there is a um, a trend often when I see people trying to communicate these things is kind of like what you've said. They've read it and they have knowledge about it and they might have a lot of knowledge about it because they've consumed a lot of information on it. But there is no real substitute for actually being on the ground and seeing, you know, whether it be butterfly conservation in the uplands of Scotland or it's, you know, rhinos in Africa. You can read as as much as there is to consume, but to actually smell it and, and feel it with your hands and be there, you gain something in your ability to communicate that that you will never be able to do unless you spend time on the ground. Exactly. And I do it all the time. When I'm writing a book or writing an article, 
I can be struggling in front of a computer, tapping away. It's not my natural habitat either. So tapping away at a keypad, just going, this is just not coming together. So if I'm writing about water beetles, I'm real, really struggle with it. The best thing I can do at that point is to remind myself what I'm doing and what it is I'm trying to communicate by going out into the, into the garden, going to the pond with a net, catching a water beetle, putting it in the jam jar, reliving, reconnecting to the experience I've had a billion times since I was a curious kid and getting it again and, and not assuming that I've everything in my mind is accurate and I've, mem- I've memorized it correctly and just starting from scratch again. And there's the water beetle. There he is glimmering. He's catching the light. Oh, he's catching the light. And straight away, these this then flows. The thoughts flow. The reason you're doing it all makes sense. You've got the actual thing in front of you. Um, and it all changes. And often, I, you know, if I get writer's block or whatever, I just take a pad and a pen. I just go out to the woods and sit in the woods and start sketching out some ideas. And also there's that thing about the way my, my head works in complicated ways. Um, the, the, the speed of writing with a pen, particularly a nice proper ink pen <laughs> or a nice pencil, um, is works with my head speed, my thought speed a lot better than a keypad doesn't work very well for me. Unless I've got a completely clear idea, the pen is much, much better. So it's a weird thing. Often I'll write these scratchy little notes and then go home, sit in front of the computer and then translate it. Yeah, no, I can. I totally appreciate what you're saying there. I have multiple notepads of scrawly handwriting that probably nobody else could decipher but there is there is something about the pace of writing and the reinforcement that that gives your mind to be able to then delve into subjects in a deeper way that is somewhat missing with the, the mechanical tap of a keyboard. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's I mean that, and that's I'm mean, trying to write a book at the moment, trying to put a book proposal together at the moment. I think I've sold the idea. I've just got to price it up. But just sitting there writing the chapters, I've really got to get out. So I keep walking out and staring at the pond for uh, yeah, inspiration. You know, it's it's uh, it's pretty good. It's on ponds as well, so I'm not just using the pond. <laughs> it is. I mean, water beetles are very much at the forefront of my mind right now. Um, so yeah, I go out and stare at a pond, or go down the river, or or find myself some fresh water and sit by it. And then um, it, it clarifies the thoughts. They all order themselves, you know. It absolutely does. Yeah, yeah I know that a lot of the, the, the writing that you have done in the past has been focused on educating younger generations. And when you're talking about capturing a, a water beetle and sticking it in a jar there, I, I'm thinking about my my youth growing up and the kind of things that I would do, whether that was dissecting something that I'd found dead on the side of the road or collecting skulls or catching frogs to release them again or catching water beetles in fact and pond skaters and i i don't know whether this is just a me getting old before my years but i i seem to or maybe it's just because i'm out of touch with what kids are really doing uh these days when they're sort of you know seven to 12 13 years old but that was how i consumed that's what consumed all of my time there and I, I worry that that is missing because I know how important that was for my sort of growth and development and understanding of me in the world as much as it was about entertainment. I feel that very much. I mean, that's, that's why oh, most, of my, most of my books, not all of them, are, are kind of manuals. They're a manual to uh, my childhood, effectively, and I'm trying to share that, often with a younger generation. But um, I'm just trying to give them some of the tricks of the trade, trying to 
because um, it's in me and it's got to come out. You know, I have to put this stuff down because um, I can't live with. I just don't. I, I really hate the idea that there's kids out there that don't know the joy. I used to call it cattle troughing, um, which was I'd go out with my my. I'd call her a girlfriend. She wasn't really. She was a field assistant. Um, I'd go out on a Saturday morning and go around the cattle troughs with a little net, and we would catch creatures in the. In, it was pond dipping basically, but cattle troughs yeah. where we lived used to have an amazing array of creatures in them, and it was like a convenient raised pond. Um, and we used to do that, and, and and then you know we used to go frogging. It all sound dodgy these now. Don't they? <laughs> we used to go frogging, um, which is as it sounds. We go looking for frogs um, yeah. and things like that. And I just think all the life lessons I learned, um, and then I see how my fourteen-year-old daughter has. I mean, you know, I'm struggling to get to. I mean, I think I have, and I think she'll come back to it. But um, she just doesn't do what I did, and I have to let. I have to let it go to an extent because you, you can't force you it. You can't force people. I love nature and shove their heads in it. You can't do that. But I think just by being surrounded by it and being surrounded by, um, if not the entire family, certainly me um, and my obsessions and the fact that I have a, I'm a biophile. I think that's a, a phrase that the great E.O. Wilson coined. It, but, um, it is indeed. I yeah, I love that word because it pretty much explains several some of my favourite people who. They just have this sensitivity, this awareness, um, this um, yeah perception of nature around them. And I, I meet so many people that just don't see stuff. I've, I've um, in lockdown, I've been taking a few people out. Um, sorry, not in lockdown, but as lockdown lifted, um, I've been taking like friends out with their grandkids and just taking for little walks around around the place and. Um, and I, I did a couple, and I, I, I just took them around what their, their daily constitutional. You know, they do this every single day. And at the end of it, I go, well, sorry, we'll go a bit more exotic next time. And they look looking at me going, no, no, Nick, that was amazing. We do that every day, and we've never noticed a single one of those things you pointed out. Um, and that, I guess that's how I see my job, is, is, is trying to share the world through my lens, I guess, um, which is, uh, you know, not a, it's a metaphor for, for just where I'm looking at things and how I'm unraveling what's in front of me. Cause I don't have particularly good eyes. You know, I'm, I'm saying, he said blind as a bat, but we all know that's completely, completely wrong. Um, I don't have, you know, I have compromised eyesight. My eyes aren't brilliant. I need glasses and contact lenses. And as I'm getting older, my, my close vision and my distant vision are separating. So I'm, I'm in the world of bifocals now. That's how, that's how old I am. Um, and, you know, so I, but I still notice things that most people don't, or a lot of people don't, or people take for granted. But I also hear, I smell, um, I'm, you know, I'm trying to you know, I hone my sensibilities all the time because I can't imagine life without any of it. It's it's that, especially this year with all the turmoil of you know this emergent virus and the chaos it's caused in all the world. When you actually strip the layers off, it's only our world that's affected. The, the natural world continues with all its processes. And if you want something to anchor you in reality and to give you hope and help you through all this, then to go out into nature, um, as a lot of us have discovered, I mean, it's almost 2020 is the year that we discovered or we were reintroduced to nature. A lot more people have become outdoory. Um, and uh, and that's, you know, that's a good thing if it's done within with a sense of responsibility, because that's the other thing. I'm seeing lots of people 
running for the hills and the woods, but they don't have the um, the tools and the common sense to see a bigger picture. So, you know, this is where we start seeing visions of litter and um, yeah. you know, rubbish. It's so, so frustrating. Yeah, it's always... To see that, that because... You know, we you, just like you've said that there was this realization, especially once we got sort of into the third month of lockdown. Everybody wanted out their house, and we were talking about nature and how it's uh, well. You you would read about it in the news and how nature. Some of these stories weren't weren't one hundred percent true, but um, nature flourishing around us. And I expected that one people were definitely going to want to get out there more but secondly i hope that they would appreciate it more and yet when lockdown lifted we saw people go and i've mentioned this on a couple of podcasts already but we saw i think down your neck of the woods down south in england uh people flocking to the beaches at the weekend and when they left at the end of the sunday they were just littered with litter and shit and just the stuff that they'd left and i was tearing my hair out thinking we've just spent months talking about how much we need to care about the environment more and the first opportunity that we had to showcase that and and appreciate it and that's what we do as a society it what it did it pointed out our lack of um understanding It, it pointed out a massive hole in our education as well because um a lot of these natural places and wild places were treated like a playground. Um, and, you know, when you're in an urban situation, there's a bin in the playground and hopefully you'll use it. Obviously, it don't. But whatever happens, someone will come along ultimately and pick it all up. Whereas actually there was no thought for the processes, you know, it was always pushing that responsibility onto someone else that wasn't there or was completely inundated with with tasks of their own. Um, but and and it and it sort of still continues. Um, so yeah, I think there's an education, an environmental education, that is required, which is all about yeah, you know, it's rules of engagement, really. That's all it is. It's a basic common sense. I mean, I remember being drummed it drummed into me as a kid you know the countryside code my grandfather would would always every time we went through a gate he would open the gate and close the gate and go go oh, countryside code always got to close the gate <laughs> absolutely and, and we'd have these it was ingrained in us and it's basic responsibility and respect for the environment and that's not and, and and other people in that environment as well as other species and and it made sense but I don't think I've heard anyone talk about the countryside code. I'm assuming it still exists. Um, it, yeah. I haven't even talked about it forever. I, you know? I, I've heard it a little bit more up in Scotland just because we, with the, the right to roam here, it comes up a little bit more. But normally it comes up because people are, are abusing this the right that they have to, to access land. Uh, but you're right. I, I think that there is a – it's twofold. There's – um, a lack of respect and reverence for the, uh, the 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 wild communities around us, but also the people who work and live in those landscapes and have done for generations and generations. And w- the 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 urban centres, and I want them to go into the uh, go into the countryside and appreciate it, because then I think the more people who appreciate it, the more that we will invest in protecting it. But they they go from the these urban centres, just as you've described, that have all these conveniences. At your at your fingertips and and within arm's reach into the countryside and forget very often that this is 
the home of wildlife and also the home of people. Yeah, yeah, and it's the it's the it's the it's the production hub for a lot of our foods and a whole bunch of other stuff. So we re- we rely on this in so many ways, and uh, yeah, and it's and it's very it is frustrating as, as a you know I've been very fortunate to be um, to have had parents that took me out of an urban a potential urban upbringing and 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 basically stretch themselves beyond their means really to buy a place in the countryside in which to bring me and my brother up which gave us the um which just gave us a childhood that my parents didn't have you know and uh and for that i will there's the most important thing that ever happened to me and i didn't even know it at the time um so you know in order to put me put me in close proximity to the local badger set or the nettle patch with all the caterpillars on or or the trees i could climb or the the dishes railway line um courtesy of dr beach and i can now cycle along you know all these things um amounted to a, 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 a i guess a wisdom um uh, that later on in life you realize not everybody holds so again this is another way i see my you know i see my life unfolding i'm i'm, I'm sort of an em- and no, it sounds, it sounds almost too big, but an ambassador of 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 the wild sounds ridiculous, but but it is sort of that. I I like to talk about it um, and what it can give us and, and what, what what its value is for us. I, I want to go on to talk about the Isle of Wight, but before, before we do that, you mentioned um, or you were quoting E.O. Wilson, and when I was doing a little bit of reading prior to this uh, podcast with you, you were on a charity with him. Did you you meet him and, and speak to him? Um, Bug Life. I, I didn't. When I was that was with Bug Life. I didn't yeah. actually. I didn't meet him, um, and that was really frustrating at that point. Um, I often get asked, "Have you ever been starstruck?" Um, and I have played. I mean, I'm into my blues music, so I've played um, alongside some of my musical heroes. I have, you know, I've met Attenborough. I've I've worked with Bellamy. Um, you know, I could I, I could drop names forever. Um, but the only time in my life that I did that really embarrassing fanboy thing um, was I was checking. I, worked, I used to work for National Geographic, so uh, the, the the TV, well, the channel that was um, uh, they had a TV channel in the states, and I was based in DC, um, and I had to fly up to New York um, back in the day when you could just jump on planes like they were buses. Um, I flew up to New York for the day to have some meetings at the uh, New York Natural History Museum. Um, and on the way back, I was checking in for my return flight and I, I did that kind of double take because the guy checking <laughs> in at the next counter was EO Wilson. No and way. I, I could not believe it. I, and I had to, I did that. I, yeah, I did that. So I'm embarrassed now that I did it, but I know I'm having a cup of tea with him in the, uh, um, in the lounge. Wait, oh, I, did, I can't even was a cup of tea, but we had, we had a drink together in the lounge before we got on our flights. Um, and I, yeah, he, it's just an amazing guy. Just really, a, a really normal person. Really appreciative of the fact that I appreciate what he was saying and his messages. And um, yeah, and that was it, really. I mean, and then we got on our planes, and I never saw him again. But um, but yeah, uh, amazing mind. Um, I, I, I've never seen him speak in public, so I've never seen that side of him. I've I've read all of his books. Um, I think the diversity of life and naturalist are uh, two of my of my favourites. Um, but there's so much. It's one of those books when you open it, and 
immediately you feel clever. Do you know what I mean? The fact you- <laughs> <laughs> it rubs off on. I know exactly. I, I have I have a lot of his books left to read. Uh, yeah, it's it's awesome. And there's also also you want to work with joy because someone is saying what you're trying to put together in your head, but you're not as eloquent as someone like him. And and you get this moment where you go, "That's what I've been saying all up." <laughs> um, and I had the same moment with uh, Richard Louv's, um Last Child in the Woods, which. I bought a copy. I was actually doing a, a bit of an RV tour around Arizona with my family, and we're actually up at the um, 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 the Grand Canyon. And I just went into the Grand Canyon gift shop um, as if such a thing. It just sounds so incongruous. But um, I went to the Grand Canyon gift shop, um, which incidentally uh, there was a finger post um, uh, in the middle of uh, this sort of complex on the edge of the uh, the southern viewpoint. Um, and Grand Canyon, toilets, gift shop, and car park were all in the same font and the same size, which I thought was a massive insult to the Grand Canyon because I've never, <laughs> I remember walking um, to the edge of the Grand Canyon and just, I've never seen a, a vista that it, it was just, it took my breath away. It was absolutely knockout and I, it's fixed in my head forever. But when I saw this finger post, I thought, how could you do it? At least put it in capitals, you know. (laughs) They were underselling. It was one of those things. It's like, this is how we see nature. It's like a commodity, you know. It's just like a service that we we all just, it's there, just like the toilets, just like the bookshop. Anyway, the bookshop gave up some treasure. And that was uh, um, Richard Lou's Last Child in the Woods. And it had a great cover of a kid looking at a frog. Um, and I bought it, and I remember sitting in the RV that evening reading it and shouting to my wife, going, this is it, this is the book, this is the one we should all live by, this is the Bible, this is what we've been trying to say all along but have never managed to collect the words together in the right order. It was, it's, And it still is, it's such a brilliant book, and of course there's many others by, by um, both uh, Richard Louvre and E.O. Wilson that are all equally brilliant. Um, but there's some books that just move you, and uh, and and those those I guess are, are two of the authors of some of those. Well, I, since, since we're talking about books, just before we get to the other way, because we're going to get there, because I, there's so many questions I want to ask you about that. I, and it's a, a book of yours which I haven't actually had a chance to put in my hands yet. So I'm going to ask you about something which I only really have read the spiel on the back and and seen the cover, which is your book on on rewilding. But that's your most recent one, isn't it? It is, yeah. And um, it's a funny book because I don't think it necessarily sold particularly well because I don't think it stood out on the shelf too well. And also the the subject, I didn't really fight for the title i mean that wasn't my idea of a title um and it kind of is quite controversial it is yeah title. so what would have your title have been well what did you want it weirdly to be? enough uh, simon barnes has subsequently brought out a book called rewilding yourself which is pretty much what my working title for this book was um and it it's sort of, that's what it would have been i think um, along those lines but it was for me, it was about – you can't talk about reintroducing beavers and wolves and bears and all the big end of rewilding if you can't understand the benefits of leaving the corner of your lawn to grow long for a, you know, a few more weeks. Yes, you mow it. yes. So it's a scale. Rewilding starts at, the, at, at just being a little bit more accepting, not being so tidy or changing your aesthetic so you're not as tidy. That's where it starts. But it starts even further – back than that and that is how you perceive the world so so that sense of aesthetic this idea that um i think it's a victorian um attitude that we have to nature which is the idea of pounding nature into submission (laughs) molded and controlled it the way that we want it exactly it's the trimming it and bashing it and shaping it and molding it for our benefit 
is... And introduce lots of non-natives while we're at it. Exactly. And it's a very out-of-date way of doing things, particularly in the current crisis with the environment. You know, we've got climate emergencies, um, well, a climate emergency globally. But to to have this attitude to... See, for me, if I look at... Um, we, we're plagued down here in the West Country, um, and probably I've seen it everywhere, um, with what I call ivy-killing warriors, people that take it upon themselves to trim ivy of trees. They'll be on a walk in a woodland. It could be even a nature reserve, and people will take a little saw with them, and they'll cut the ivy what? at the base of the tree because they think that ivy is killing the trees. So they take it upon themselves to save nature. Now, in doing so, what you then get is a tree covered in dead ivy. Now, I would argue that the the beauty, and I see it in parklands, I see it in my local churchyard, I would argue that that you've not made it more beautiful by killing the ivy, you've actually just created a really ugly monstrosity as it all goes brown. Green is better than brown. The same goes for mowing... um, uh, verges. It's like this is idea that you, this green verge. I mean, I know there's a health and safety issue in this as well, but it's, it's actually that's also blown out of proportion. Um, but there's this idea that long grass is untidy, even though it is peppered with wildflowers. It's not beautiful. Therefore, we we cut it all back, so you end up with a yellow turf. Um, that is pretty. No, it's not. That is not more beautiful aesthetically. I 100% agree with you on that. The the the, the trimming and and cutting of verges, incessant cutting of verges is one of my massive pet peeves. Yeah, and it's and well, I mean there's and I've been str- struggling to find it. I again I I heard it on I heard it on a podcast. I did it on a cycling podcast actually. It was a uh, because um, cycling is another one of my uh, is another one of my passions. And um, it was all about this idea of you know we spend millions every year on traffic calming um, uh, furniture. Uh, um, yeah, measures of bumps and doesn't, whatever. Yeah, it, it doesn't work. It creates um, it creates localized um, pollution. It also makes more people more irritable. So it makes drivers more irritable, which is the exact opposite of calming, um, and therefore is more dangerous. Um, but there's been a study, and I cannot find the reference to this study because I've lost the I've lost the thread. It will it will appear somewhere. If every, anyone any one of your listeners knows this study or know can point me in the right direction, please get in touch. Um, and it, it is this. There's a study that says that actually, by letting the verges grow, because you can't see round the corners in the same way, um, it actually saves. It actually um, slows traffic down, and it has the extra benefit of being really good for biodiversity. It creates wildlife corridors. Is um, it is it? Yeah, these are these are linear nature reserves um, um, in effect. So, so all these things are ways that we can change our attitude to nature. Um, um, anyway, I'm, lo- I'm losing my thread now. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you, we 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 we're on in the same shirt in that respect. I think absolutely. Now to to the Isle of Wight because uh, that's one of your, one of your most recent projects. Uh, there's a, a video out which I'm going to uh, link in uh, the description for the podcast. Uh, I've never been there. <gasps> what an amazing place. Just for people, because we have a lot of people from all around the world who listen to this podcast, just explain where is the Isle of Wight on the globe and why is it so awesome okay. visually and, and, and the habitat that's there? Well, the Isle of Wight is this amazing little diamond-shaped island that sits slap bang in the middle of our, the southern coast of England. It's It's this tiny little blob on on bigger scale maps you it, or they almost merge it into the uh, 
into the mainland of, of England. But the reality is it's separated from England by the Solent, by I don't know what the distance is now. You can see one from the other. It's not, not that far. Um, and it's a bizarre little place. It's I've known it really well um, because my – well, from when I – pretty much from when I was born until – sometime in my 20s, I would go on my annual holiday there with my family. We'd pack every sort of um, August, we would pack up the uh, the tent into the uh, trailer and uh, me and my brother and my mum and dad would uh, would drive the Vauxhall Cavalier. Uh, that's a part of the good to those that uh, aren't of, uh, of, of British origin. Um, it's a, it's a, 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 and we would drive over to the Isle of Wight, go over on the ferry, and then would start an adventure. It felt exotic because we were traveling across the ocean to get there. Um, and I just got to know it. it. It became this really lovely part of my life. It's uh, a place where I cut my teeth in many ways, where I learned how to observe. I learned about everything from rock pools to bird watching to, to butterfly hunting and grasshoppers and crickets and everything, really. Um, and it's it was a, an extension on my otherwise fairly um, – yeah, my, my life was really orientated around my home and school, and that's all very close to one another. So, so I didn't really get out much, and we didn't go on exotic holidays because my mother wouldn't fly – um, um, and we, we probably couldn't afford it. So the Isle of Wight was where it was, yeah, and that's what we did, and we camped as well. So we would call it wild camping now because it was literally just a tent in a field. Um, the only facilities the place had was a tap, um, and this was on the very southern point. So you imagine a diamond. Um, it was the very southern tip of that diamond as it stuck out into the Solent, and that is – I'm sorry, not into the Solent, but into the ocean. And that is pretty much where we spent all of my summer holidays. And then we'd go out, use that as a base, and then we'd go out and explore. Um, and then recently um, I revisited the Isle of Wight uh, just to um, – well, to see what it was – how it's changed, really, and, and to see how, um, you know, how it, how it rates in – in my mind as whether whether I've blown it um, out of proportion and how great it was because of, you know, when you experience things as a kid, often it's rose tinted glasses, yeah, really rose -tinted glasses but actually I was rather pleasantly surprised. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it was a, it was revisiting child, childhood haunts really. And um, yeah, I've got a, as I said, I've got a real passion for the place and, uh, and it is lovely. It's so and it's been um, designated as a UNESCO biosphere reserve. What what does that mean in the grand scheme of things? What, what other biosphere reserves are there in the world? Well, that puts it up there with um, you know places like Ayers Rock. You know, it's it's a massive significance both culturally um, and uh, as far as the landscapes go, the environment. It could be to do with the the the, the richness of its diversity of nature. It could be to do with the geology. It's, it's all of those things. So it is a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, which is an absolute. I mean, anyone who's been to the other way can gets it. They go, oh yeah, about time, you know. But but actually, if you've not been, um, it's a place worth checking out, and it's great. It's easy to get to because it's. Um, and it's easy to get to it in an eco way as well. It's really well. Um, I mean, I, I love cycling, so do it on a bike is is the dream because obviously you you can take it at your own pace, um, and you can also 
forward through the dull bits. Not that there's many of those on the other white, but you can kind of pedal pedal fast through the bits you're not interested in, and then you can linger. And the great thing about it is, where's a car? You're always feeling guilty about where you can park and how you can pull over. And you know, if you saw one of their, because there's a massive project reintroducing um, white-tailed eagles to the Isle of Wight, which is our you know our largest raptor. Um, and um, you know, if if one of those flew over the road and perched in the tree, and you're driving. You don't have the flexibility. You can't just stop. But actually on a bike, you can just unclip and there you are. You know, you can just stop and see it. And and that's what I love about it. So exploring the island, plus it has an amazing network of old disused railways, which um, which you can use to get about a large proportion of the island. Um, and then the rest of it, you can find these beautiful sort of cycle-friendly uh uh you know, quiet byways and lanes. So it's uh, it's got a lot going for it from that level. I love that because I think something which we will all have to be more conscious of going forward is the impact that we we make on the planet when we are going to destinations to enjoy ourselves and trying to do that in the most sort of eco-friendly way possible. And this sounds like um, a, a great case study of that it is and and this year has been i mean it's been a case study of that for a lot of us because a lot of us have had our wings clipped and um and you know what? i think it's quite good to look back and look at that and look at our actions and look at you know that i get almost the selfishness of traveling and i'm guilty i don't say i'm not i'm, I'm, I'm a hippie oh, me too absolutely you know, i've traveled the world i've seen a lot of a lot of stuff and I've, I've racked up a massive carbon footprint um and it can come across as it's all right for you baker you've done it all we haven't you know um but I think with a sense of responsibility, you know, work with companies that are trying to put stuff back, you know, that are um, doing carbon offset programs. And there's a lot of them out there. And yes, it might cost you a bit more, but that's the real cost as opposed to this one that is artificially um, uh, sustained um, by our various, uh, I don't know how we do it, but our various economies. So Actually, the other one, it's a very easy, it's a great staycation location in that sense. But then there's you know, lots of places around the UK. Oh, but it's a, it's a great way of getting to know what's closest to you because it gives you a, a stronger sense of place. It makes you realize that, you know, where you are on the globe in many ways. And, uh, um, and I've done it even here. I mean, I live on Dartmoor and um, I cycle around a lot. Um, it's, my, it's, it's what I like to do. It's good for me. Are you not doing a big cycle event right now? I am. I'm doing a charity ride at the moment, which is, um, well, I say it's a Strava tra- charity ride. So it's not one ride in one go. It's a sort of a, um, a an accumulative mileage through this month. And we're trying to raise money for um, uh, Tusk. Um, they've got a, of course, yeah. got a ride for Rangers um, uh, uh, fundraiser going on at the moment. The idea is with tourism, and it all links in quite, quite a lot with what we're saying, international tourism has been has been promoted quite a lot in recent, and, and actually lots of countries have become dependent upon it. Um, and of course, in places, in, in many of the parks in Africa, um, this uh, you know, tourism income uh, helps uh, look after the landscape, it helps ma- manage the, the habitats, it also helps um, uh, police the poaching issues that we're, we're all too familiar with. Um, and of course, with, with with the coronavirus issue, I hate to keep bringing it back to it, but it's such a massive thing in all our lives right now. Um, the corona has all sorts of uh, implications, and one of them is tourism, is people aren't travelling with distances, which means the money isn't going into these small communities, which means poaching is on the rise. Um, and there's poaching patrols sitting there, but they don't have anyone to 
that, that's paying them. So um, I've got together with some of my colleagues from a company I work with called Wildlife Worldwide, who do, you know, they, they put together exotic um, wildlife watching programs all around the world. But, but a lot of them are to Africa. So it's a way of giving back a little bit to to trying to help what we've become reliant on over the years. So we're putting a little bit back. We're helping um, uh, maintain, well, hoping to maintain and employ the anti-poaching patrols that are so essential. Um, so what we're doing, the team of us are all going out. We're cycling around. We're, we're accumulating mileage um, at uh, a great cost to our uh, to our fat resources and our sweat. <laughs> um, I have to say, I'm, I've, I'm become a, I've become a whippet since I've started. Um, actually, that's not entirely true. I've still got a lot. <laughs> but, but, but my love handles are decreasing by the day. I did a 65, uh, 65 miler yesterday with um, some friends of mine um, who are on the team. So there's Nick Garbert, who's a very famous, uh, well-known wildlife photographer and author, um, wrote many of the best travel guides to Madagascar, for example. Um, and Nicky, uh, Nick Mackman, who's an amazing uh, wildlife sculptor, um, and um, and a guy called Chris Breen, who's one of the, the chief execs of the company. Um, and we all went around Exmoor yesterday on our bikes and hit some of these ridiculous hills. We accidentally found a hill that had a gradient of 32%. It was it was so sudden and so unexpected. Um, Strava didn't even didn't even tip us off that was coming, and we hit it. And I mean, we managed to well, most of us, half of us, managed to get up the hill without. We managed to get up it, but it was so steep that you know, trying to get your balance on the bike without pulling a wheelie or losing traction with the rear wheel was was a was a, an art form. But um, but yeah, so we're doing that to raise to raise money. So bikes are bikes are really important. But what's interesting, this whole process has meant. Um, someone t- I mean, this sounds like a massive plug for loads of companies. That, but I don't. I'm not sponsored by any of these companies, by the way. Um, I work a bit for Wildlife Worldwide, but that's it. Um, I was introduced to a, an app called Komoot. Now, I've never heard of this before. Um, since been introduced to it, I've noticed it on a lot of adventure biking kind of um, websites. But it's spelled K O M O T, um, and you just put in what your destination, and it takes you on the best, most bike friendly. Um, route basically and it is really good and via this i have found villages within 25 miles of my house i didn't even know existed you know little hamlets and villages and landscapes and bridges and 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 woodlands and bits of just it's been an eye-opener now if we're talking about staycations as being a way of getting to know your patch you know you can have a staycation literally staying at home and going right where are we going? We've never been to this square kilometre of our landscape. Let's go there today and see what's there. Um, and that has been, I mean, we're talking about micro adventures. You know, I cycled up to Bude at the weekend using this app. My my family went out there to do a bit of surfing. I said, I'll tell you what, I need to get my miles in for the charity ride. I will meet you up there. So I plugged it all into Kamut and took off on this route. I didn't, I've never, ever been on any of these roads before. And um, it took me down some amazing routes. And, and some roads were barely barely clearing the definition of what a road should be um i think on strava one of the one of the segments was was labeled danger moon craters um <laughs> gives you an idea of what i had to put up with but but i found places i didn't even know bude had a canal i found a bit of a bit of canal in in bude which was or right on the outskirts of bude which was amazing so this is what we mean by staycation and if you want to get really exotic and and, and say you're you know like, like you are you're up in scotland um, you can get the train down to uh, you know Portsmouth or Southampton and nip over the Isle of Wight on the ferry as a foot passenger or as a, 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 a on two wheels, um, 
And you can have an amazing adventure and see a whole different landscape with all these little microclimates, um, relatively easy and at a fraction of the cost, um, both in carbon terms and in monetary value. So, so you can have an amazing holiday right on your doorstep. And that, I think, is, I mean, safer, but I think that's the way it's going to go for a while. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you about great green bush crickets in a second. So just hold, keep that thought because they look awesome. Um, but if people want to find out about your um, uh, the, the charity ride and, and want to donate, is there, is there a way? Can people um, go and yeah, you find can go that to, well, you can pick, pick up my, um, I've got various uh, social media, Twitter and um, and uh, Instagram uh, feeds. I can't remember what I am. I'm, I think I'm Bug Boy Baker on Twitter. And I think I am Nick Bug, Nick underscore Bug underscore Baker on Instagram. Um, you just uh, I'll stick I'll stick it in the show. Yeah, yeah, put it in the show notes because I I can't remember. Uh, I'm I'm really rubbish at self publicity. Um, um, and once I set up an account, I forget about it, and I've suddenly realised that you know, I've then got to ex- explain it to it. But it's it's all there. Um, it, it's a bit on my Facebook page. I'm on Strava as well. Um, and wildlife worldwide um, have also got links to our just giving pages. Everybody, you don't have to sponsor me. Sponsor any of them. Um, you know, if you don't like me, but you like Nick Nick's uh, sculptures, or you like the other. There's a lot of Nicks in this story, by the way. Um, we all went around the other day. There's three three people called Nick on bikes, and it was really getting confusing. But 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 basically, sponsor someone called Nick, uh, and maybe someone called Chris, and anyone else you can find, um, and it will all help us out massively. That's great. Yeah, we've actually we've talked about um, Tusk as an organisation before because uh, Leveson Wood was on a couple of months ago, uh, yeah. and he's an ambassador for Tusk, so he he was telling us a little bit about the work that they do. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a good it's a good cause, and also it's good it's good for me. I mean, it's good for all of us. It's good for our heads. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I jokingly say that the main reason I'm doing it is to uh, is to lose the love handles, but um, but actually, it you know, it's not. I, I it, it has many many values, and of course. You know, I'm getting to know places, and also it's given me material to talk about as well. So I'm learning about um, loads of places. I'm learning about this situation we find ourselves in as a species um, a lot more as well. I'm also enjoying meeting people that haven't met someone for so long because they've all been locked down. Everyone wants to talk at the moment. It's brilliant. (laughs) It's weird, isn't it? It's It's weird. And and just and just going to something that you were saying uh, a little earlier about. finding places close to where you live. I had a friend over from the the States not that long ago, and we did a bit of a tour around the West Coast of Scotland. Now, I do lots of works, filming and photography on the West Coast and up north and Isle of Skye. And normally when I do that, I am going to a destination, I do my job, and then I make the four-hour drive home. And having somebody with me who wasn't from the place at all forced me to stop in all these places. I mean, I willingly stopped, but it gave me a reason to stop in all these places that I drive through all the time. They're beautiful places and little shops on the off the 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 road on the the sort of the coastline of Loch Tay. There was this amazing little shop that made um knives and forks and different artifacts out of um uh, antlers from from red deer primarily and what a cool little place and i'd driven past that i don't know in my lifetime maybe 50 times i'd never stopped there and i i think that our lives today well not since march but up until that point for the last 20 30 years 
have just been this rat race of A to B, get back, get on to the next thing. And we don't often give ourselves the opportunity to pause and just take a little bit of time out to see these places and appreciate what's on our doorstep. And I'm as guilty of that as anyone. I live in a beautiful part of the world and most of the time I'm fixed to my computer screen editing something. And every now and then I look out at the hills and just remind myself, look at this place that I'm in. I need to explore it more. Yeah, we had this conversation yesterday. We, we got down to Lynmouth and we were all sitting there having a pasty on the seafront. And we're all professionals and we're all struggling for work and we're all trying to reinvent ourselves. And there's a guilt. You know, we feel that we should be at home trying to find work. And then we all stopped and just this conversation came up as we were sitting around our pasties going, do you know what? We've had a really good day today. We've seen places we've never seen before. We've experienced places together. We've had an adventure this is what we're living for. This is why. When you say, I make a living doing this, well, what is that living bit of that sentence? And what are you doing it for? Are you doing it so you can buy the, the very next, um, I don't know, um, box set or are you or the very latest this or very latest that? We've become so uh, consumer orientated. I mean, the great thing about lockdown is that I have, I've, well, I mean, I've been forced because I can't afford to buy new stuff, but I've been forced to pull things out of, of drawers that I haven't worn for ages and, and actually reuse things. And, um, you know, I've got, a, I've got a woodshed and I've been meaning to, this is my lockdown project, was to build a woodshed. And um, I've had the materials for ages, um, but I don't have all the materials. And I had a bunch of slates that have been sitting behind the shed. They're all different sizes, but I had to put a roof on this shed. And I thought, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to lose the clutter, but I'm going to be inventive. So I ended up cutting slates by hand. So I had a full set same time and i've done okay it's a little bit heath robinson it's a little bit patched up but it works as a roof and i just felt really i'm really proud of it you know and it's little things like that it teaches you to get away from this disposable um easy come easy go kind of existence that we have kind of found ourselves drifting into and of course that with it with, with that comes a lot of environmental cost as well so all these things i believe in the long run what we're what we're going through as a species now um, I really hope we'll clip our uh, uh, well, just change our perspective, make us look at a bigger picture. But you're right; these places are all around us. These little, these little mysterious places. These little places where, where um, you know, we've taken it all for granted before, and uh, and then suddenly you've got a reason to stop. And and actually, I find myself doing it now. I'll be, you know nipping across the moor for a meeting and again i drive past a pub with the best beer garden in the world and i think oh one day i must stop there no 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 today is the day do it yeah do it now while it's in your mind do live in the moment i mean and i mentioned this in the rewild book is it's about um up until relatively recently um that whole idea of living in the moment always sounded a little bit like some of my slightly alternative hippie friends might say. And I'd, <laughs> yes. I'd always like, I'd always dis- just discard that as going, yeah, yeah, whatever. You don't live in the real world, do you? But actually, they live more in the real world than I realised. And and that living in the moment, that mindfulness, that all that is part of. Um, again, mindfulness is another one of those words where I always associate it with 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 you know yoga breathing. yeah incense <laughs> incense exactly and gongs and singing bowls and things like that and um and what then someone i was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's a martial arts tutor and and he said nick mindfulness is the very beginning of the one inch punch uh, you know being aware of every single fiber of your being is all is is the root of all martial arts. Now you tell me that's Nambi Bambi. It's not. That is the you know that's about as hardcore as you're going to get. And I went, 
actually, yeah, you've got a point. So I've had to rethink all this stuff, you know, and um, I have become uh, very much a liver. I've, I've got a lot better. Well, I've got a lot better in lockdown at doing this because I've needed to, to, to stay sane. Um, where I nearly lost it was when everyone unlocked a bit and started going back to work. And when you're freelance, you're uh, uh, in the world that I am, you're already niche, but you're at the bottom of a food chain of niche. Um, and Don't worry, everyone, I feel your pain. I'm in the same boat. <laughs> exactly. Everyone went back to work, and I'm sitting there going, "Oh, oh, oh, well, that's all right then." Um, I'm, and I'm stuck, you know. And I don't get any. I'm not, you know, I'm not getting any government help. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't meet those those particular standards and requirements. So I've just sort of fallen between the, the slot. And it's very easy to to hate the world when that happens, but. I've sort of, it's been a really, it's been a, it's been a journey. It's been a trouble and things are sort of picking up a little bit, but, but it, it has been a bit of a journey and still, I mean, I've had several phone calls this morning already that uh, this is a major part of every single one of them, but um, yeah, we're getting there. Um, we're rethinking it all a little bit. Um, I'm getting left, left behind a little bit on the, on the technology and the social media side of things, mainly on the grounds of, um, I am a bit of a dinosaur. I, yeah. I you're not missing out much. I I have a, a serious, although I have to use it all the time for work. I have a serious disdain of uh, of this social media world. And in fact, if anybody wants to watch quite a scary documentary, there's a new one out on Netflix now. I can't remember what it's called, but it's 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 one of the the trending ones at the top. It's all about social media and the algorithms and how the the companies have manufactured them to be addictive yeah. and it's yeah, yeah. really really scary yeah well it fits in with how we want the world to view us it, it, it clicks into the human ego really well and i'm i'm sort of struggle because i i have moments with it when i use it because i can see a use for it either for myself or helping other people and then it can be a beautiful thing but it can equally turn very quickly into something that's very ugly um and, um, yeah, and, and I'm of the generation where, you know, when I was at university, whilst the internet did, well, it didn't really exist, certainly not like it does now. Um, you know, I, I live in that, I remember watching, I was watching a, a, an old film with my daughter and their computer screens with green writing on it and code. And, <laughs> yes. and my daughter's looking at it going, what, stupid, computers don't do that. And I said, no, they did. That's what they did. And I said, that is how a computer looked like when I was doing my degree. And she like looked to me like a, some kind of alien. But um, but the point is, is it's changed. And I'm sort of right at the very beginning of the the computer generation without having any of the tools. I was never taught um, computer or IT based technologies um, at any point in my education. So everything I'm doing, I'm teaching myself. And, and every day, somebody who's got a better handle on one of the platforms, whether it's Strava, whether it's Twitter or whatever it is, um, will will give me a new tip, and I'll go, oh yeah, brilliant, and and off we go. And I'm trying to teach my dad, and I really, really feel for it. My dad made his very first video call the other weekend, which was a major breakthrough. But but oh, tremendous! I feel how scared I am using the technology. Imagine what it's like for somebody who's you know nearly twice my age doing it for the first time. It's 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 like magic. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, Nick, I, I am very aware that I have uh, been speaking to you for an hour and it has flown by. I could quite happily 
have, have a conversation for another hour. But um, there's just one or two things that I wanted to just ask you about, which we can just touch on briefly okay, if you've fire, got the time. Uh, um, the, just tell me about the great green bush cricket, because I've never seen a cricket so big in this country before. Well, you don't get them up in Scotland for a start. They're very much a southern coastal species. So um, they're found all over Europe, but they um, we have them here in the UK. And for me, as a kid, they were very much a species it was it was stuck to the south coast really it had a distribution along the south coast of england and all the little warm patches now obviously my experiences away from the coast i lived away from the coast in east sussex um so when i went on my holidays i went to the coast on the isle of wight where of course i bumped into this insect and it's a joy it's our biggest um well, it looks like a locust almost yeah, it's that size it's an argu- arguably one of our biggest insects so it's um it's a big sort of finger size the females in particular are big finger size insects um they the males sing um and their sing sound their song sounds like a um your wheel bearings on your car have gone and i remember <laughs> the, the sound of it, it's the sound of my holidays it's it's the it's the soundtrack of feeling good and happy it's someone it's you know if if, if you have that vision of your salad bowl days, it's got a great green bush cricket I love in that. the background. And for me, it's one of the few insects you can be aware of whilst traveling at 65 miles an hour. Um, but it's also a beautiful, spectacular, it's a ra- ra- raptorial, carnivorous cricket as well. Um, and yeah, and I, well, when I was there making this film um, uh, recently, you know, we bumped into it and I, I had to do it because it was. Um, you know, it was right there, and it was it was it was my childhood came straight back to me. Now, if you live on the south coast, um, what's happening is this cricket is following river valleys up, so it's following the tendrils of these um, these river valleys up um, in inland. So their, their distribution is definitely increasing, and this may also be um, might be something we shouldn't be so proud of. Um, it's the adaptability of the insect, of course, but it's also possibly a reflection of climate change. So as it gets warmer. Um, these things are um, are tracking um, up um, and, and, and more north. So, you know, whilst I said you don't get them in Scotland, it may yet yeah, the way things are going, it won't be long. You know. Um, and just finally, just tell me about. Uh, and I realise that there, this is not happening right now because the the world is still struggling to travel. But you are also run wildlife trips for people. Yeah. Um, um, t- tell me about that and how people can find out more information about that and yourself and the other things that you're doing and hopefully talks and uh, other events that we'll be running when when the world turns back to normal. Well, I should say all the details have been my website, and my website is terribly out of date. If you had a little look for research, I did have a look. <laughs> stuff on there which I should have removed a long time ago. Um, so I work for several several pieces. So Wildlife Worldwide, um, I've mentioned. Um, we are trying to do uh, weekend trips, so on, uh, um, which is keeping it local. So I'll be taking people out and showing them my Dartmoor. So I live in a national park here uh, in the middle of Devon uh, called Dartmoor, and um, I know it intimately. So the idea is I show people around there. So I'm going to be doing a lot of domestic type trips. I do, uh, I work um, for the Grant Arms up in uh, Granton on Spey. Um, so oh, lovely. I go up, up, up your way quite a bit. I love Scotland um, for lots of reasons, the big skies, um, the, uh, yeah, the, 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 the challenging skylines. I love, I love the big spaces and the clean air. So um, I, I work for them um, a couple of times a year Um and uh, I've got a trip to Greece uh, for Green Wings, um, which is very much a, 
Um, we're going with uh, Matt Doog, who is known, well, I call him Macro Matt on, on um, Instagram, um, but he is one of the best macro, insect macro photographers. So we're going on an adventure like two kids. We're taking loads of other kids with us. Uh, no, we're taking grown-up kids um, uh, to Greece next year, uh, assuming everything doing what you know carries on the way it is um, i'm hoping we will uh, be unlocked enough to do that um but the idea is we'll be taking people to show them some of the most exciting insects of greece um, um and also if you're a photographer uh, you're going to have one of the best photographers um in the uk there to guide you through and tutor you in in how to capture those uh, that microcosm so um so there's that and um, yeah, keep an eye on the website and the social media feeds because i will be doing i might even be doing my own um just off the bat just i'll be doing a you know nature walk this weekend uh, come and meet me here limited numbers but you know i'll take you out and show you my my patch as it were so um so that's 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 the future at the moment as far as the travel goes uh again we we've got a trip we had a trip to india planned to go looking for the reptiles and amphibians of india uh, again with wildlife worldwide who have a a very good carbon offset program as well so um but yeah we don't really know how what the future holds really do any of us so um we keep an eye on those things but the local stuff is most likely to run uh, whatever that's brilliant well nick it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you uh thank you so much for the time and your insight and the, the work that you have done in the past and the work that you're going to be doing in the future uh i it, it makes a a big difference to people, I think, and I know from my own personal experience that uh, certainly that you know the work in the past that you, that you did uh, inspires people to pursue uh, careers and, and passions, and the the passion that you have for it it comes through in all of the conversation that we've had today. So thank you so much, and uh, maybe at, at some point in the future uh, our paths may cross if there's an event going on or if you're up in Granton and Spain I know that you're here um, it would be it would be cool to sh- share, a, share a beer and, and, and talk more on the stuff that we've been talking about today anytime at all I'm, I've, I'm very approachable I don't put any barriers I just like talking to people as you've gathered this time has flown <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure so anytime you want to I want to continue this conversation um, uh, you know where to find me brilliant thank you thank you Thank you once again for listening to the podcast. Join me again in two weeks' time when we take another walk into the wilderness.